the 17th chapter of Hilchas Malva Beleva, the laws of a lender and borrower. Today's chapter contains nine halachas and deals with the regulations regarding collection of a loan. Perek Shiva Asr, the 17th chapter, Halacha Aleph. The Rambam discussed in the second halacha of Perek Yudalit that if a lender is holding a document proving that another person owes him money, he is allowed to collect from the other person even should he claim that he has already paid it. Because what else, what is he doing with this document if it's already paid? Normally when a person pays off a loan, he demands the document so it could not be used later as proof against him. And the Gemara says, and the Rambam rules, that the lender need not take an oath. However, as he mentioned there, should the borrower demand that the lender take an oath, we do force him to take our shvua. In this halacha, the Rambam, this through the, the first eight halachas of this paddock, the Rambam discusses the case of heirs. When a person has died and the heirs are, are discussing the loan. In this particular halacha, the Rambam discusses what happens if the lender dies and the heir is coming to collect the loan from the borrower. Mal If the lender dies, and along comes the heir of the lender to claim the money back from the borrower using the document that he has. And the, lend, the borrower says, that I already paid back your father. The heir answers that I don't know. How is he supposed to know? It was paid back to his father. In this case, we tell the borrower, stand up and pay back. That just like if the father himself had made the claim, he would be required to pay since the person is holding a document. So too over here, you must pay. However, so too over here, if the borrower should say, swear to me, swear to me that it's not paid back. Over here, there's a difficulty. The heirs cannot swear that it's not paid back. They say explicitly that they don't know. Nevertheless, the heir must take an oath holding a sacred object such as a Torah scroll. What does he swear? Not that it was, was not paid. He cannot make such an oath. What does he swear? That our, my father did not command me through another party. Another party to tell me that it was already paid. And our father did not tell us explicitly from his mouth. And we did not find among the documents of our father proof that this particular document was already paid. Once the heirs or heirs swear to these three things, they then can collect the debt since they are holding a document and just as their father could collect, they also can collect. Halacha Beis. In this case, the Rambam discusses what would be if after the lender has died, the borrower also dies, and the two sets of heirs are working out this loan. Let's say the borrower dies after the lender dies. And along comes the heir of the lender to collect from the heir of the borrower. So too, in this case, he is only allowed to collect after swearing. And the heir of the lender tells the heir of the borrower first, meaning before he collects. <coughs> Some versions over here, the, the Lushan doesn't fit quite right. The Ksavyatayman says, meaning that the judges tell the heir of the lender to do the following. That swear the following statement. 
that our fathers did not command us, and our fathers did not tell us anything, and we did not find among our fathers' documents that this document was paid. Just as in the previous halacha, he must take such an oath, so too in this case. The difference is, as the commentaries point out, between the case where the borrower is alive and if the borrower's heirs, that if the borrower is alive, we make the heir take the oath only if, he, if, if the borrower demands. Over here, the borrower has died and the claim is being entered against the heirs of the borrower. In such a case, we make him swear even should there be no request from the heirs of the borrower. We make this taina for them. And even if the heir of the borrower is a child who's, who's in the crib at the time that the, that the borrower himself dies, nevertheless, the heir of the lender can take his oath and collect the loan. He need not wait until this heir grows up. And we do not worry that perhaps when he grows up, he will have a valid legal claim to prevent collection, since the heir of the lender is holding a document. And if, should the borrower have commanded at the time of his death, right before he died, that this particular document has not been paid, in such a case, the heir of the lender can collect without even taking a loan, even not only from the lender himself, but even from the Yedish, from the heir of the lender. He need not take an oath and can collect directly. However, this that the heirs can collect, this is only after first the lender dies and then the borrower dies. Let's say it should be reversed. The din changes completely. Let's say first the borrower should die and only thereafter the, the lender dies. In such a case, the heirs of the lender cannot collect anything at all from the heirs of the, bar, of the borrower. What is the difference between this and the previous case? At the very moment that the borrower died, immediately the lender was required to take an oath. And since he's the lender himself instead of the heirs, he must take an oath that he wasn't paid. And only afterwards can he collect. As we explained previously. However, this was when he was alive. And at that time, you must take a good oath, a complete oath that he was not paid. And now, now he's dead. And he can, a person is not allowed to, to pass on as part of his inheritance such an oath. Because they are not able to swear that their father was not paid. They don't know that their father was not paid. So in a regular case, as we mentioned in Allah base where first the lender dies and then the borrower, in such a case they, are, they can take an oath. Because there was never a requirement to take the stricter oath, meaning not only that they don't know or that the father didn't tell them, but an oath that, they were never, that this was never paid back. However, if first the borrower dies, at that moment the lender is required to take a regular oath that it was not paid. Once he himself dies, the heirs cannot collect with such an oath that they are ta- capable of taking. However, in the Gemara, this law itself is a matter of dispute. And the Gemara does not decide clearly what the halacha is. Therefore, if the judge made an error, and he made the heirs of the lender swear, and with this oath he had them collect their debt, we do not take it back from the heirs of the lender to give it back to the heirs of the borrower, since the Gemara does not decide clearly what the halacha is. 
and therefore star chayshal yisaimim haboim liporreya min hayisaimim shemeisavim alevet chila. Therefore, a document of a of a of a debt belonging to orphans, to heirs who are coming to collect from other orphans, and in the case. In this case, it's as we mentioned at the beginning of the halacha, that their father, meaning the father of the of, of the heirs of the borrower, the borrower himself, has died first. Such a case ain't kaidin, they say. The ain't magbin bay. You don't rip up the document, but on the other end, you cannot use it to collect. Ain't gaidin bay. The reason you cannot collect with it is because of what we said at the beginning of the halacha. Shein adam made a shvuah leban of kamoshabiyarno. A person cannot pass on as an inheritance his own oath to his children, as we said before. His father would be able to take the oath that was paid, but the children cannot take such an oath. On the other hand, you still can't rip it up, even though the heirs are not allowed to collect with it. Why? Because perhaps a judge will come along, and after his judgment, he will be, he, someone will collect using this. And even though the judge is making an error by doing so. We do not take the step of ripping up the document and preventing such an error. Because this is not a complete error, because the Gemara does not decide whether the law is like Rabbi Shmuel, or whether it's like Rabbi Eliezer. And since, if someone collected, it would also be valid, we do not even rip up the document. Halacha Dalit. This deals with an interesting intermediate case. Over here, it's true that the borrower has died first, but on the other hand, he doesn't want to collect from the heirs. There's another person, an Arab, who he can collect from. Even if there was an Arab, meaning somebody who guaranteed repayment of the loan. And the borrower died first. In such a case, the heirs of the lender cannot collect even from the guarantor, from the Arab. If we would say that you're allowed to collect from the guarantor and you were just not allowed to collect from the heirs, you're not going to help anything. Because because the guarantor himself is going to pay his back his loan, pay back the money which he had to spend from the, from the heirs of the borrower. So if you're trying to get out of illegally taking money away from the borrower, it's not going to help to take it away from the audit, from the guarantor, because the audit himself will take it away from them. So therefore, you cannot take from the audit since it's only indirectly taking away from the heirs of the borrower. Halacha hey. And this halacha, after the Rambam has given us the principle that that a person cannot pass on an inheritance, an oath, to his children, the Rambam now limits this. And he brings up the case we mentioned at the beginning of Perek Yudalit. Hapege a person who ruins part of his document by saying that it's partially paid. What also he, in order to collect, although he has a document, is required to take an oath. You cannot extrapolate from this law, as we mentioned in Halacha Gimel, that you cannot inherit a, an oath to your children to any similar case. A person who ruins his own document by saying it's partially paid. And then he dies. Even though he himself, since he was Pagamishtari, could only collect after taking an oath, nevertheless you will apply this oath to the children. With the three part Shvua we mentioned previously that our father did not instruct us through a third party and he did not instruct us directly and we did not find among his documents 
Shakol Ashtar Hazeh Perua. That this entire document was already paid. And after they take such an oath for giving us Shar Hashtar Bein Min Hamalva Bein Miyarshav. And then, and then they can collect the remainder of what it says in the documents, whether from the borrower himself or from the Yershim, those that inherit his estate. Although from the principle given in Allah Gimel, you might think that he would have to take the regular oath of the father, and he would be unable to take such an oath, because the father would be required to take an oath, that he was not paid the rest of the document, and the children cannot take such an oath. They can only take an oath that their father didn't tell them anything. And, and, and although we said in Allah Gimel that we cannot inherit this right to swear to the children, this is only in the case we mentioned of Mesa Mesa Malva as in Allah Gimel. But we cannot extrapolate to other cases such as Pegim Ashtari, since in there the oath can be inherited. Up till now, the Rambam has been mentioning cases where the borrower or the heirs of the borrower claim that the loan was paid. Let's say they make a different sort of claim. Halach Avav. One heir, the heir of the lender, obviously, who comes to collect from the heir of the borrower. And these heirs of the borrower make the following claim. They don't claim that it was paid. They claim that their father told them that he never took out the loan in the first place. In this case, In this case, although he's making a stronger claim, he has actually, halakhically, it's a weaker claim. And should they have said that the loan was paid, then the lender would be the lender or the, his heirs would be required to take an oath. Only here, since he denies the entire loan, we don't believe them at all because the denial of the loan is obviously false. How can there be such a statement when we when we are holding a shtar, a valid document showing that there was a loan? At least have it be as as good as a claim of paraiti. So the Rambam says no. Shakola Anyone that says he did not borrow, it is if he has said that he has not, that he has not paid. He cannot say that he did not borrow in the first place and later on make a claim that he didn't pay. Since he says he didn't borrow, obviously he says that he didn't pay. And this is true not only if the heir of the Malva says so, but even if the Malva himself, the lender himself, makes this claim. The Cain Malva And so too when the lender comes to get paid, from the heirs of the borrower, Va'omru, and these heirs make the following claim. Our father told us that he never borrowed the money in the first place. So too over here, this lender is allowed to collect even without making an oath. And furthermore, even if it was, and the monus was written in the star, in the shtar, meaning that it was explicated in the document that he would be believed to say, Paraiti, I paid. Even though it's explicitly stated in the document that he would be believed to say, Paraiti, that's only Paraiti that he paid. And in this case, he cannot make such a claim. Any claim that I never borrowed is just like saying that I never paid. Because you can only say you paid if you agree to the borrowing. Allah Zayin. The Rambam will now discuss whether the condition of Nemonis, that the borrower will be believed to say paraiti, that he paid, does this get transferred to the, in, to the heir of the lender's estate? Uh, an heir who comes to collect from the borrower with a document which has written in it Nemonis, that the borrower should be believed any time that he says that he paid, in such a case, the borrower just takes a rabbinic oath 
as in every case of a kafir hakol, someone that completely denies a claim against another, or a claim which has been entered against him, he makes a rabbinic oath that he already paid this document, and then he is exempt. And And this is true even if it was not written that you will also be believed against my heirs. We might think that it applies only to the Malva himself, that the lender is the one that trusts this borrower. But perhaps the heirs do not trust him. Even though it was not written that my heirs also will trust you, nevertheless, it is still binding. This condition is binding on the heirs as well. The main part of this document was dependent on this, on this stipulation. In other words, this is the basis of the document. If not for this condition that he would be believed to say, Puraiti, probably this borrower would never have agreed to have a document written in the first place. Since it's such an important factor in the document, it must be passed on to the heirs as well. And furthermore, even he's not love, if the stipulation was made that he should be believed even without an oath, he does not have to take an oath. He is exempt merely with his claim. And a filu, even to the Yorshe Malva, even to the heirs of the lender, he doesn't have to swear to them either. Even though you might think that this condition, that he is believed, does get passed on to the heirs. But to believe him to such an extent that he won't even have to take a shvua, to such an extent perhaps that wouldn't be passed on to the heirs. The Ramam tells us that even though it was not explicated that it was passed on to them, nevertheless, they are bound by the stipulation and therefore the borrower need not take an oath. A minor who was an heir of an estate and he inherited a shtarchev, a document of a loan which belonged to his father and he wants to collect with this document. However, the borrower produced a receipt after the father passed away. So since he has a receipt proving that he already paid off this loan, his document is worthless. Normally, when someone produces a shaver, a receipt in the Bezdin in the Jewish court, this is reason enough to tear up the document. Since this is shaver, literally it breaks the document because it shows the document is no longer valid since it has already been paid. Nevertheless, in this case, we suspect that something illegal is going on. And therefore, ain't paid in a tashtar. We do not rip up this document. But on the other hand, we still cannot have him collect because the borrower has a receipt. Until the orphans grow up over the age of bar mitzvah. Why? Why don't we trust him with this shaver? We normally listen to, the, and listen to his claim and accept the receipt. Perhaps this receipt is forged. And that's the reason he did not produce it when the father was still alive. We suspect him in this case. If he really has a shaver or receipt, why is it he did not come when the father was alive and present it to the Bezdin in order that the shtar should be ripped up? Since he did not do so until after the father died, we suspect that it was not totally legal and perhaps the shaver is mezuyah if it is forged. And therefore we wait until the orphans grow up and can present reasonable legal claims themselves. And now the final halacha of the Perek Halacha test. To understand this halacha, we must review something we mentioned earlier in these halachas regarding the currency which was used at the times of the Gemara. There the currency was dependent on the actual value of the silver or precious metal which was in the coin. It wasn't just a valueless coin or a coin with lesser value than was stated on it, dependent on the size, the thickness and weight of the coin, this would be the value of the coin. 
However, they were called by the same name often. A dinner, for example, was a coin used in Babel in Babylon and also in Eretz Yisrael. However, the dinrim which were in Babel weighed more than the dinrim in Eretz Yisrael. The Rambam will now speak about a dispute as to which dinrim should be paid. The lender obviously thinks or is claiming he should be paid with the heavier dinrim and the borrower says no, he was... He borrowed dinrim of Eretz Yisrael, the lighter dinrim, and therefore should have to pay back less. A lender who produces a document against someone else, saying that he owes him money. And it, the place where it was written is indicated on the document. And it was written in Bovel. We collect based on the currency in Bovel. Since that's where the document was written, we assume this is the currency which is meant. Should it be written in the land of Israel, we collect based on the currency in the land of Israel. And even though the loan might be collected in some other place, we go after what was written in the document itself. This is not the case in a marriage contract. That in the case of an almana, if a woman is widowed, or in the case of divorce, there is a certain amount of money which she was promised in her ksuba. Should she be married in one place and divorced in another, the Ramam explains in Perak Tezayin of Hilchas Ishus, Halacha Vav, that we go after whichever coin is worth less. Should it be worth one value in the place of writing and another value in the place of collection, the woman gets whichever is less. Zeramim terms this one of Kulei Ksuba. This is one of the leniencies, a leniency evidently for the husband or for the orphans regarding the collection of a ksuba, that's, as the explanation is given, that since the woman is more happy to be married than the man is to be happy, she is more in need of the partner than the man. Therefore, we do not give her as much financial benefit in the case where the, where the relationship was broken up. Let's say, now that I'm in returns to the case of loans, let's say that there is no place written in the shtar. And he produced it in bubble. In this case, since we do not know where it was written, it's collected from the currency in bubble. Should it be produced in Israel, we collect it using the currency of Eretz Yisrael. Let's say that according to the law we mentioned above, there is a the, the place is written in the shtad, and the lender wants to collect it based on the currency in the place where the document was written. For example, it was written that the loan was taken in Bovel. He wants the heavier currency from Bovel. And he is allowed to do that, as we mentioned in the beginning of the Lacha. However, the borrower claims that the money he owes is from a, from a cheaper form of currency, a cheaper coin. Than, than the one he hopes to collect from. He claims, for example, that he only borrowed dinrim from Eretz Yisrael. In this case, the lender can only collect with the higher coin after he takes an oath that the coin which was referring to, which was referred to were the coins of bubble. Let's say let's say it didn't indicate what type of coin was it. not only from where the coin was, but doesn't even mention a specific coin, it just says Kesef silver. In this case, whatever the borrower desires, meaning the lowest coin, the lowest value coin, it is only this that the lender is allowed to collect since no coin whatsoever was indicated. And now from here to the end of the Lacha, the Rambam learns some general principles regarding the testimony 
of a loan, and also about the strength of a shtar, and what burden of proof the document must contain. The law of the Torah is, in general, that when there is testimony, it must withstand drisha and chakira, that the judges must intensely question the witnesses to see whether what they say is true, and therefore their testimony must contain specific statements as to the time and place of the event they are bearing witness to. And so too, it has to be edus sheyochol lahazima. It must be possible to make hazama on these witnesses. The idea of hazama is as follows: a complete contradiction of their testimony. Not, for example, the witnesses would say, we saw him kill that person. And the, another set of witnesses say, no, we saw someone else kill him. That is hakosha, that is a contradiction, but it's not called hazama. Hazama is you completely uproot their testimony. How can you completely uproot their testimony? You, set, you t- tell the second witnesses, tell the first set of witnesses that it is impossible you could have even testified in this case. Because at the moment you say you saw the murder, you are with us in another city. It's impossible. You're, they're not arguing with the contents of the testimony. The fact that they are giving testimony is under discussion here. This is called Hazama. And the law of the Torah is that you believe the second set of witnesses. Now normally, as the law of the Torah is, that should it be testimony which is impossible to contradict in this way of Hazama, it is invalid testimony. But the Rambam will now tell us that these requirements of Drisha and Chakira and regarding the time, and regarding uh, testimony, are not required in the case of loans. And the Rambam derives this from the law we previously said. We previously said, well, what is done if it's not written the place, of the doc- the place of, uh, on the document? We said, if it's written bubble, you collect the bubble. If it's written at its roll, you collect at its roll. And if there's nothing written in the document, you base it on the coinage and the place where it's collected. What do you see from this? From this you learn that a document which does not have a place written in it is kosher completely. And the same thing applies not only to place, but also to time. A document with no time written, it, written in it is shahu kosher. It is valid. Even though testimony of such sort and these witnesses who signed on a document without a date, you cannot possibly do hazama on these witnesses. Because how can you claim at the moment that you gave testimony? You were with us in another place, and we don't even know when they gave testimony. It doesn't, it doesn't say on the document. Why is it we do not require such testimony? We are not exact when it comes to financial matters in Drisha and Chakira with intense questioning of the witnesses, as the Rambam will explain later in Ilchas Eidos. And why is it that they have this leniency? In order that the door should not be closed before borrowers. They did this not for the... It looks like it's for the benefit of the lender, not the borrower, since we are not questioning the lender so intensely. Nevertheless, it is in reality a leniency for the borrower, because if not for this, he wouldn't be borrowing money in the first place. If the lender knew he would be subjects to such, such intense questioning and such a tremendous burden of proof before he could collect his loan, he would rather not have the trouble and not give the loan in the first place. And furthermore, a post-dated document is also valid. Even though you cannot do hazama, such a refutation by other witnesses of such a document either, since it was dated after the event actually took place. As will be explained in the proper place, in Perakhov Gimel of these halachas, where the Ramam will go into documents which are post dated and so on.